At the beginning of the 20th century, American laws began to limit who was able to have children. How and why did they do this? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. This is Elizabeth, and in this episode, I will be explaining the dark side of the period in American history known as the Progressive Era. While the Progressive Era brought us, for instance, conservation movements and the Pure Food and Drug Act, it also brought us eugenics, or a movement wherein the goal was that only the, quote, fittest people reproduced and had children. Fitness, as you might guess, was entirely subjective, but in the period we are discussing, it mainly meant that you were white, considered intelligent, most likely middle class and above, without physical or mental disability, and Christian. Listeners of my episodes will know that I occasionally choose topics about which I know little to improve my own teaching. This topic, however, was a request by listener Angela W., and I offered to do it because I teach it. But... That doesn't mean that I didn't do additional research. And all of our teacher listeners out there know what I mean. We never stop doing research to keep up to date. While the ancient and classical worlds potentially had forms of selective breeding or murdering those deemed unfit at birth, most believe that both in indigenous cultures here in the Americas, as well as in Europe, those with physical or mental disabilities or mental health issues were largely accepted by their communities. It was important to be able to serve a purpose within your community, but responsibilities could be modified based on ability. For instance, a person unable to walk could be left to tend the communal fire. We know that in colonial America, a man who suffered from mental illness was given the job of educating children until his delusions became too great. It was only largely during the Industrial Revolution that disabilities of any sort became to be viewed as problematic for the whole community because, especially for the working class, All family members needed to be able to contribute by working in factories, and there was no longer time or ability to be left caring for individuals who were unable to provide income in this way. It is during this period that we see the birth of institutions to confine those with disabilities. The first schools for those with disabilities were for the blind or deaf because people with those disabilities were still deemed intelligent enough to be productive or profit-making members of society. In the United States and since colonial America, There were laws passed that restricted people from having sex or children with people outside their race. When the United States was founded, seven of the 13 states prohibited miscegenation, or procreation between people of different races. And in 1947, 30 of the U.S.'s 48 states still had and enforced anti-miscegenation laws. In fact, the Nazis borrowed or copied a number of U.S. anti-miscegenation laws into their laws. But while anti-miscegenation laws were passed due to fears of race mixing and diluting white racial blood, it was not, however, until after the publication of Charles Darwin's On the Evolution of Species that the idea that humans should try to breed the, quote, right people into existence and the, quote, wrong people out of existence, that the term eugenics was created. This idea was not only about preventing the increase of non-white races, but also about preventing the increase of who some term to be inferior whites. In Darwin's On the Evolution of Species, he argued that over an incredibly long period of time, species, including humans, evolved for survival. A cousin of his, Francis Galton, decided to take this one step further, a step that Darwin actually disagreed with. But Galton argued, 
apparently very persuasively given the next half century. People could help along this evolution and that everything about one's success in life was dependent upon your genetic makeup. Poor? Bad genes. Wealthy? Good genes. It was the ultimate argument for nature over nurture. There was, Galton and other adherents to eugenics believed, nothing that could be done to course correct if your genes were, they believed, subpar. Now, this term originated in England, but it quickly gained supporters in the United States, which wasn't very shocking as both countries had a belief since the Reformation that wealth meant you were blessed by God and poverty meant that you weren't. The Calvinist belief in predestination had long held sway in the New England colonies, and although you couldn't absolutely know if someone was saved, it was believed that you could kind of get a hint by their status on Earth, God liked them or not. So when Galton made the case that science had proven that genetics was the explanation for success or failure, it was already somewhat built into these cultures, and it found easy acceptance among certain groups, especially Protestant members of the middle and upper classes who, by their status, knew that they had good genes. Inferior peoples included anyone of the lower classes, anyone who wasn't white, anyone who wasn't Protestant, anyone who wasn't straight, anyone who didn't adhere to the gender restrictions of the day, anyone with a mental disability, anyone with a mental illness, or anyone with a physical disability. By the late 1800s and early 1900s then, there was a question of what to do with the so-called inferior peoples who, because of their so-called inferiority, i.e. poverty or inability to earn an income, were a, quote, drain on the economy or deemed to be undesirable for other reasons, such as their religion or sexual orientation. The Immigration Act of 1882, which is more often called the Chinese Exclusion Act, and if you're interested in learning more about that aspect of the law, you can listen to Nathan's episode on it. But the Immigration Act of 1882 did not only target Chinese immigrants. It also targeted immigrants with mental or physical defects and legislated that they should not be allowed to enter the United States, lest they become a public charge. Many of these port entrances were largely entered by poorer immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe who were already believed to be inferior compared to those from Northern Europe. By 1903, people with epilepsy were not allowed to enter, nor anyone who had exhibited mental illness in the past five years. In 1917, the category was again expanded to anyone with, quote, abnormal sex instincts. Officials were told to rely on their own discretion in determining who was or was not, quote, mentally defective, and they took this responsibility seriously. While keeping out undesirable immigrants was seen as a public good soon, thanks to the spread of the views of Francis Galton, Americans and others determined that keeping out undesirables could not be the only focus. Instead, they needed to prevent the birth of what they termed inferior beings within the United States. This idea was championed by numerous wealthy American philanthropists, including the Carnegies and Rockefellers, who put money behind groups, including the American Breeders Association, the American Eugenics Society, the Eugenics Research Association, the Galton Society, the Institute of Family Relations, the Race Betterment Foundation, which was founded by John Henry Kellogg of Cornflake fame, and the Eugenics Record Office and even by many members of a new political party that arose in the early 20th century, the Progressives. The Progressives believed government would be able to intervene to improve the lives of the average American, or who they deemed to be the average American, or who they wished to be the average American. Now, the Progressive Party was not limited to eugenics. In fact, they had ideas that many might find positive or, you know, progressive. But that does not mean that their inclusion and support of eugenics should be overlooked. Initially, they formed non-governmental organizations to try and limit breeding, yes, breeding, of who they termed inferior. Perhaps the most famous of these groups was controversial back then, not because of their stance on eugenics, 
but because they taught women how to control their own reproduction through birth control, Planned Parenthood. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was very much into eugenics, and her hope was that the lower classes would use birth control to limit the number of children they had. The goal of organizations such as Planned Parenthood was for white, Christian, middle-class individuals to have as many children as possible, and maybe everybody else who didn't fit these categories could refrain through the techniques they taught. But Margaret Sanger is not the only well-known progressive who favored eugenics. The list also includes Helen Keller and even Teddy Roosevelt. A divide in the eugenics movement, however, came between those who believed, as Sanger did, that it should be up to the woman to decide if she wanted to prevent or allow pregnancy, and others who believed that doctors or the government had a responsibility to intervene in order to help the white Christian race remain dominant. Helen Keller, for instance, weighed in on the highly controversial Hazelden Bollinger case in 1915. John Bollinger was born severely disabled in November 1915. Dr. John Hazelden determined that he could perform a surgery that would save the baby's life, but it would be useless, and he counseled the baby's parents to refuse treatment and let him die. The baby did die, and most likely this story would never have even been made public, except Dr. Hazelden decided to make it so as he wanted others to follow his lead. He wanted others to counsel parents not to attempt life-saving measures on babies that he deemed would never be productive members of society. Helen Keller, as per a letter she published in 1915, believed that it was appropriate for the doctor to refuse to operate on what the doctor considered to be a severely disabled newborn. Instead, Keller believed the baby should be allowed to die, and in fact, that there should be a panel of doctors who made similar decisions for other babies. Hazelden actually made a movie called The Black Stork in 1919 in which he championed his beliefs that not only should severely disabled babies be allowed to die, but that couples should have blood tests before marriage to determine if they had any genetic incompatibility that should stop them from having children. While the movie did not do well, this idea continued to spread in the United States until, by the late 1920s, forced sterilization was found to be constitutionally sound in the Supreme Court case, Buck v. Bell. In 1924, the state of Virginia adopted a statute authorizing the compulsory sterilization of the intellectually disabled. The statute was based on a model eugenics law developed by a man named Harry Laughlin, who was the director of the Eugenics Record Office, a research institute in Cold Spring Harbor, Long Island, New York, which was dedicated to furthering eugenics in the United States. Remember all those groups I said supported the eugenics movement in America, including the American Breeders Association and the Race Betterment Foundation? Well, out of all of these groups, the Eugenics Record Office had a building, research facilities, and paid staff courtesy largely of the Carnegie Institute. They were serious about trying to make eugenics mainstream, and for a period of time, they seemingly succeeded. This research institute existed from 1910 to 1939, and one of its most lasting legacies, one could argue, was the development of this eugenics law. After other states, such as Indiana, passed a sterilization law but had it overturned, Laughlin developed his law and had it vetted by legal minds. The Virginia statute based on Laughlin's model was then itself vetted by the Supreme Court. On September 10, 1924, the superintendent of the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and the Feeble-Minded filed a petition to sterilize 18-year-old patient Carrie Buck. According to the superintendent, Buck had the mental capacity of a 9-year-old, her mother had the mental capacity of an 8-year-old, and both women had illegitimate children. Buck's bloodline, therefore, was seen as defective and the idea that she could have more children as harmful to the state of Virginia. 
Buck and her guardian took the case all the way through Circuit Court of Amherst County, then the Supreme Court of Appeals of Virginia, and finally the Supreme Court. They argued that the sterilization law broke both the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court found against Buck in an 8-1 decision. According to Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in his ruling, forced sterilization was the same as compulsory vaccination in achieving the public good, and that, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough, end quote. Buck was sterilized and, without her knowledge, so was her sister when she had appendicitis. Buck's sister did not learn for 50 years why she and her husband were unable to have children. Buck's sterilization normalized such laws for many states, as those who were pro-eugenics hoped it would. While a 1927 court case somewhat tempered the numbers of involuntary sterilizations performed in the United States, these laws remained on the books and enforced in many places. During the Nuremberg trials after World War II, the trial of Buck v. Bell was used as a defense by the Nazis on their use of sterilization and eugenics. After World War II, though, eugenics became less popular on the national stage. By 1963, most states had stopped practicing forced sterilization, and the section on eugenics was removed from the Virginia statute on sterilization. In a sad corollary to Buck's story, she was most likely not feeble-minded. Eventually paroled from the institution, she was allegedly a voracious reader until her death, and her daughter Vivian, the reason why Holmes spoke of, quote, three generations of imbeciles, end quote, was considered normal intelligence at her school, and even made honor roll before dying of measles at age eight. One of the reasons Buck was sterilized was because it was argued that she was promiscuous, but based on later reports, it seems that the nephew of Buck's foster parents raped her, and her family had her institutionalized to save face. So, of course, none of this means that everyone supported eugenics. Individuals such as Justice Pierce Butler, who dissented in Buck v. Bell, as well as organizations, including the Roman Catholic Church, spoke out against eugenics. But ultimately, it was the horror of the Holocaust and the 400,000 sterilizations of those the Nazis deemed inferior that caused it to fall out of favor. Interested in owning some footnoting history merch? You can find out more through our shop link at www.footnotinghistory.com. Want to support the show and keep it open access? Our Patreon is at patreon.com forward slash footnoting underscore history. You can also follow us on Twitter at History Footnote or on Facebook and Instagram as Footnoting History. And of course, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>